This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Jamda On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda On The Go for December 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Once again, I'll be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Mallory Brown. Doctors Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Hi, Carl. Hi, Carl. So this podcast will be the last one under the editorship of Drs. Sloan and uh, Cheryl Zimmerman. And I just want to take a moment to express my deep gratitude for your leadership as editors-in-chief. JAMDA was already a well-respected and reliable journal when you all took over, and you and Cheryl have elevated it to really one of the most influential journals in our space. So uh, just thank you so much on behalf of all of your associate editors, reviewers, authors, readers, and our AMDA membership at large. So uh, anyway, this final issue under their watch is packed with interesting papers, and we've chosen four of them to discuss that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. So the topics are going to include deprescribing, infection control, osteoporosis treatment, and palliative care. So Dr. Brown is going to lead off discussing a scoping review of randomized trials of discontinuation of medicines in older adults. Tell us, Mallory, what can we learn from this paper? Sure, Carl. But before I jump into this paper, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to Phil. Dr. Sloan's been an incredible mentor to me throughout my career and to so many others, particularly during his time as editor-in-chief for JAMDA. So I encourage our listeners this holiday season, consider giving the gift of mentorship. Find a junior faculty, a nurse, or another member of the team and invest in that individual's career. Not only will that individual benefit from your support, but so will the lives of so many of our patients and colleagues. Again, a huge thank you to Phil for his incredible investment in my own career. Well, it's all been a labor of love, all a labor of love. <laughs> so back to the article, and this one's fun. It's about deprescribing, which is a geriatrician's favorite sport. This article looked to map out the randomized trial evidence discussing the feasibility of discontinuing active medications with potential adverse effects in older patients. It's a scoping review with systematic search of PubMed, M-based and Cochrane, the Cochrane Library. The authors included randomized trials investigating discontinuation of a single medicine or a medicine class in patients with mean age that was greater than that of 65 years. The trials investigated discontinuation of a variety of drugs, including cholinesterase inhibitors for Alzheimer's disease, alendronate for osteoporosis, glucosamine for osteoarthritis, lithium as an adjunct for unipolar depression, statins for cardiovascular disease in patients with limited life expectancy, droxidopa for neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, tamsulosin for lower urinary tract symptoms, 
sertraline for major depressive episodes, and fentanyl patches for low back or osteoarthritis pain. So a pretty pretty good spread of medications that we might potentially use. 40 randomized trials were identified using a variety of designs investigating discontinuation of both symptomatic and preventive medicines in older patients. Five discontinuation designs were used, 75% of trials were placebo-controlled, and 48% of the trials had bias disfavoring discontinuation. The dropout rate was similar between the discontinuation group and the continuation group in 79% of the trials, and disease recurrence was similar in 72% of the trials. In 42% of trials reporting both dropout rate and disease recurrence rate, the differences between groups were statistically insignificant and less than 10%. Discontinuation of medication seems feasible for most of the investigated medicines. This scoping review can guide clinical practice and future trials on deprescribing. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we're all about discontinuing unnecessary medications, and I hope our listeners feel the same. But uh, I have to admit that stopping an SSRI might not be advisable for all patients who are on it, because at least for those with multiple previous major depressive episodes, I've read that the recurrence rate is near 100%, not less than 10%, like what this study said. Uh, and I've certainly seen people who have significant recurrence of lower urinary tract symptoms when an alpha blocker is stopped. So uh, I'm just wondering what your take is on the best approach for deprescribing based on this article, uh, Phil and Mallory. And are there some categories of meds where maybe we should shy away from a widespread push to reduce or eliminate? You know, I guess the, the first thing to think about is that we really have to individualize, you know, more aggressive deprescribing persons near the end of life or who have incredibly large medication lists, you know, would be, make sense starting with cholesterol lowering medications and maybe denepazil. But the other thing that isn't mentioned often is thinking about staff and family burden, you know, so another target is medicines that are probably useless and though harmless cause unnecessary burden, such as vitamins and glucosamine. After that, we get down to case by case. And, um, I think we all could spend a long time talking about our lists. Um, my favorites are PPIs because we know there's some adverse effects of long-term use that are pretty significant. And the other is prophylactic antibiotics for recurrent UTIs, um, many of which are not UTIs, of course. Right, right. Mallory, anything else? No, I think you make some really good points, Carl, about the, I mean, I've, I've watched patients cycle with sertraline um, or other SSRIs where they're doing well and then they they stop it. And so I really think a lot of this is a case-by-case basis, but still good evidence to support the effort to deprescribe and decrease total medication burden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all about person-centered care. And I think that's that's should always be a take-home message, I guess. And I know, you know, AMDA's drive to deprescribe that we've done with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists and uh, other organizations has been very successful, even though it's sort of you know, it casts a broad net and just, uh, you know, it's like we're going to try to stop multivitamins on everybody. Uh, and there may be people who, uh, for whatever reason, it's appropriate to continue them. But anyway, good, uh, good chat. Thank you. Our second paper is an excellent broad look at some of the changes we ought to be making across the board with respect to infection control in nursing homes through a post-pandemic lens. Phil, please tell us about this one. Well, this is called Reimagining Infection Control in U.S. Nursing Homes in the Era of COVID-19. It's an incredible 
rich resource for medical directors, policymakers, and others interested in nursing home infection prevention. It was written by Chris Cernich, an infectious disease specialist in Wisconsin, who knows and works in nursing homes and who's been a longstanding member of AMDA's Infection Advisory Subcommittee. The article begins by summarizing all we know, you know, that infection control, even before COVID, was the most commonly cited deficiency in nursing homes, with 82% of facilities receiving a citation in the five years between 2013 and 2018. Recognizing this, CMS introduced a set of new regulations in 2016 that included requiring every nursing home to have a dedicated infection preventionist and an antibiotic stewardship program. Unfortunately, enhancement of nursing home infection control has not occurred at a rate that can keep up with the increased volume of post-acute infection issues coming from the hospital, such as persons post-sepsis, persons being admitted with indwelling devices, persons needing wound care, and people who are colonized with MDROs. This was all happening before COVID. And while the pandemic laid bare the weaknesses of nursing home infection control, nothing comprehensive in the way of change has really occurred. So the remainder of the article lays out a comprehensive plan for enhancing nursing home infection control. It uses an approach called systems engineering for patient safety to lay out the structural inputs, processes, and outcomes that robust infection control programs should consider and address. Building on this framework, it presents 29 specific recommendations of things that can be done by an individual nursing home, or in some cases, the nursing home industry, or regulatory agencies to improve infection control. The 29 recommendations are organized under the categories of people, tasks, tools, organization, built environment, and external environment. It would take too long to present and discuss all 29, so let me provide one example. Under the category of people, the paper lists seven recommendations. Some would be hard to do at a facility level because they involve more global policy issues, but several can be more directly addressed at the facility level, such as engaging consultant pharmacists to support key antibiotic stewardship activities and finding ways to offload some of the infection preventionist burden of monitoring and reporting. And the great thing about this paper is that a medical director can meet with the administrator and director of nursing and together figure out which of these recommendations are the low-hanging fruit for their particular facility in terms of improving infection control? You know, they're not trying to turn you know, nursing homes into hospital infection control units. And so the paper can help us see that infection control quality, they see the big picture, but also help us identify the small things that can be done to start moving in the direction of better quality of infection control. Yeah, this sounds like an excellent resource, and I, I looked it over, and I do plan to uh, you know study it in some of the buildings where I go, and I see that it's available at no cost even for non-members and non-subscribers, so listeners, uh, please feel free to disseminate that. Uh, one thing, uh, you know, there has been some work recently uh, that I've been able to help on that I don't think it's all published yet, but uh, there's the PROTECT and SHIELD tr- trials. Uh, where, first of all, there's a uh, shockingly high amount of MDRO colonization uh, in nursing home residents, at least in Southern California. Uh, And uh, secondly, that uh, decontamination uh, by bathing with chlorhexidine can be uh, very helpful in in moving the needle on that. That didn't make it into this piece, but that's uh, another 
uh, another thing for our listeners to consider. And I think that those published papers will be out before too long. Uh, but in any event, I hope we see some real and measurable improvement that comes from implementation of some of these strategies that uh, Dr. Cernich uh, included in this uh, really sweeping piece, really excellent. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for 2023 to gain access to our live and archived webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, and Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. Uh, the next article is going to be one about treatment of osteoporosis in nursing homes. It's a very common condition. It can lead to serious morbidity and mortality through fragility fractures. And there are reasonably effective treatments. So I have often thought that we're not doing a great job of treating people, even those with known and severe osteoporosis, or you know, even those that come into our facilities after a hip fracture or something. So Dr. Brown, what controversies does this article point out? I think you can all agree, osteoporotic fractures are common and serious health problems for older adults living in nursing homes. So that's not the controversy that it points out. Risk of fracture increases with age and dementia status, but gaps in evidence make it sticky to decide when to start and when to stop treatment for osteoporosis in our nursing home residents, particularly those who have high fracture risk but limited life expectancy. This article digs in on those areas of controversy. The article provides an overview of current guidelines that explicitly address osteoporosis treatment strategies for nursing home residents. It reviews the evidence for osteoporosis medications in nursing home residents and uses these sources to suggest practical recommendations for clinical practice and for research. Three published guidelines and several studies provide the current basis for clinical decisions about osteoporosis treatment for nursing home residents. Practical approaches may include broad use of vitamin D and selective use of osteoporosis medication based on risks, benefits, and goals of care. Clinicians still lack strong evidence to guide treatment of nursing home residents with advanced dementia, multimorbidity, or severe mobility impairment. Future priorities for research include identifying optimal approaches to risk stratification and prevention strategies for nursing home residents and evaluating the risk-benefit profile of pharmacologic treatments of osteoporosis in nursing home residents across key clinical strata. In the absence of such evidence, decisions for initiating and continuing treatment should really reflect a patient-centered approach that incorporates life expectancy, goals of care, and the potential burden of treatment. Yeah, yeah. So as I recall, bisphosphonates reduce some fragility fractures substantially in a relatively short time, like within a year or less. Uh, And obviously, if someone has a short-term terminal condition, then that kind of treatment wouldn't be necessary. Uh, But I'm thinking for most nursing home residents, even the more frail and chronically ill ones, or maybe especially for those, uh, you know, frail ones, wouldn't it be a good idea to, to use a bisphosphonate or something? I just feel like we're not doing a great job of preventing fractures that could be avoided. Uh, Mallory, Phil, any, uh, any additional input? 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Carl. I mean, I think that the time needed to treat is something like a year, like you suggested. And so um, many of our nursing home residents have that kind of life expectancy. This is one of those treatments that we can see real benefit from um, in a relatively short period of time. So I think with the, to me, with the, um, without the risk of if somebody's not going to swallow the pill or if it is a burden to staff or family, then um, besides that, I think there's not a lot of harm um, in using these medications. I would just add my um, approval to these ideas. You know, the general consensus is we just aren't doing enough. You know, even people with acute fractures, more often than not, don't get started on bisphosphonates, you know, in study after study. So um, I guess for me, the, the first take-home message is when somebody comes in to the nursing home for rehabilitation for a fracture, think about, about bisphosphonate. Yeah. And then, you know, just taking it back to the whole notion of person-centered care, right? Uh, all right. So our last topic, perhaps fittingly, is about the wish to die. Uh, most of our clinician listeners, I'm sure, have cared for patients who either passively or actively wish to die or even pray to God every night that he will take them or what have you. Uh, and this study comes from Switzerland, where not only medical aid in dying, but also full-on euthanasia uh, are legal. So, Phil, what can our listeners learn from this piece? Well, you know, before discussing the paper itself, I'm going to talk briefly about a related topic. You see, a week and a half ago, the Washington Post ran a story about an article that Dr. Zimmerman and our research group had published recommending guidelines for medical and mental health care and assisted living. And of course, the newspaper went way beyond the article to talk about assisted living in general. Readers wrote 493 comments in a handful of days before the discussion was closed. Reading over these comments, the interesting thing to me was that even though the article was about care standards, much of the discussion gravitated toward how bad the experience of mis major disability or dementia is for the person with the illness. As one wrote, and I quote, I cringe at the thought of going through it myself, unquote. In 41 of the comments, that's nearly 10% specifically mentioned a desire for euthanasia. Comments range from, you know, quote, it's better to get a handgun and squirrel pills, end quote, to I have what I need to do it, to investigate voluntary stopping eating and drinking, to euthanasia should be legal, which gets us to the study in this month's JAMDA. It's entitled Wish to Die Among Residents in Swiss Long-Term Care Facilities. The setting is interesting because, as you mentioned, Carl, Switzerland is the country with the most liberal euthanasia laws, for example, allowing persons who have much greater than six months life expectancy, including persons with early or moderate dementia, to legally end their lives. In fact, I recently read a book describing how a successful architect with dementia that was entering the moderate stage traveled to Switzerland to do that. The book is fascinating. It's called In Love, and it was written by his wife. So the JAMDA article reports results of interviews with 280 nursing home residents in Switzerland, where the conversation is probably as free as anywhere. They were aged 75 and older without severe cognitive impairment and had been admitted to the nursing home between four and 10 months before the study started so as to avoid the often challenging initial adjustment to nursing home life. Of these respondents, 16% specifically expressed a wish to die. Those expressing a wish to die tended to be older with more limited mobility on more analgesics, meaning in more pain, 
and to have higher depressive symptom and demoralization scores. Interestingly, of the 16% wishing, expressing this wish to die, in all but one case, the wish to die was a passive one, that death would be hastened by natural processes. And in their discussion, the authors point out that active euthanasia, while legal, remains quite rare in Switzerland. But they do note that of these rare events, 10% involve nursing home residents. So what's my take home from this discussion? I would say two things. Number one, there's a lot of people who want to avoid a long lingering disability and prolonged dying process and are talking about choosing when they die. I can't help wondering if the baby boomers as we get older may try to change society's beliefs, you know, rules and practices like we did about divorce, gay rights and marijuana use, also about euthanasia. Or we're going to get whether we're going to get pushback like we have with the abortion issue. Number two, we shouldn't be afraid to talk with patients and their families about the wish to die or to continue the conversation when they question why they are still alive. Carl, as this is an area of your particular interest, do you have specific thoughts about what to say and do when these conversations arise? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is heavy stuff, right? And these are difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my opinion, an important and sometimes really rewarding part of what we do, at least for me. And what I would say is, first, it's essential to just be present and listen to what the person is saying, right? This is uh, really significant uh, stuff that they're sharing with you. And it's important to acknowledge the sadness and the loss that they're feeling and to show compassion, right? Uh, So like, I'm sorry you're in this situation. I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be for you to have to rely on others to help you do small things. Or, or whatever it is that's, uh, um, you know, that's adding to their wish to die. And it's not our job to try to convince them that their life is worth living, because really they're the only ones who get to decide that. But it can be helpful to remind them of positive things, like the love of their family, or the memories of what they've accomplished in life, uh, or the activities that they still enjoy. I do think it's important for us to rule out major depression, and I'm a believer in at least trying antidepressants uh, if there's a chance that they uh, may be clinically depressed, as long as they're not opposed to it, uh, or even psychostimulants when they're, when they're really apathetic. And, and uh, honestly, I think once psychedelics are more widely available, which I suspect that we will see before too long, I think they'll be worth a try too for some of that existential uh Uh, suffering that people have uh, as they lose independence. But ultimately, I'm a boomer myself. I'm a big believer in autonomy. And if someone wants to die, and if they're making an informed decision about it, I think they should be entitled to a prompt and comfortable death. So if they're in a place where medical aid in dying is available, uh, or if they're in Switzerland and they can ask for euthanasia, uh, and they meet the criteria, that should be an option, right? And if not, uh, they can voluntarily stop eating and drinking with comfort medications to ease that process. But, uh, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, right? So mm-hmm. uh, any final remarks, Phil or Mallory on that? No, I, I think as you say, it's another podcast. <laughs> hmm. lots, to, lots to think about, lots of opinions. Lots yeah. to uncover for sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, we're probably a long way from euthanasia here. I, I mean, they have it in Canada and uh, it's uh, it's fraught, right? I mean, the American Medical Association still opposes 
what they still call physician-assisted suicide or what you and I might call medical aid in dying. So, uh, um, you know, there are those who would say, well, that's not part of our job description, right? Uh, anyway, we've gotten fairly far afield, uh, which uh, I enjoy. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jammed on the Go podcast, uh, the final podcast for Drs. Sloan and Brown. And I will be sad to, uh, uh, you know, to lose this uh, monthly meeting that we've had. And uh, it's been super enjoyable for me. Um, and uh, next month, we will be meeting Jamda's new co-editors, Drs. Paul Katz and Barb Resnick. Uh, and uh, they have told me that they've got some uh, interesting ideas in store. So please uh, join us to, uh, you know, to check that out next month. Uh, so under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. Please take a look at the December 2022 issue. Dr. Sloan and Brown, thank you for spending your time with JAMDA on the go for all these months and years, and thanks for your, your great work. And uh, let's keep in touch. It's been, it's been a great pleasure, Carl, and you've done a fantastic job, and Wayne, before you. All right. Well, references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go. Happy holidays and happy new year, everyone. See you in 2023. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.